mode. Good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for attending. We are, here we go, that looks better. Uh, thanks for attending tonight, uh, V Brown Bag US Wednesday evening. Um, today we are going to continue with our AWS Solutions Architect Associate Certification um, training um, series. And tonight we're going to talk domain four with tr um, the troubleshooting domain. We've got Zach Zied from AHEAD. Uh, is, is it just AHEAD, Zach, or is it AHEAD something? Uh, it's, it's just AHEAD. Okay, from ahead, <laughs> and uh, a couple of quick housekeeping notes, and then we'll get this thing lit up. Um, get in on the conversation. I am monitoring the Twitters, uh, at vbrownbag, hashtag vbrownbag, um, not LATAM or EMEA. You know what those other webinars are. Um, tonight, like I said, it, we've got Zach Z on the hook. Um, he has got a GitHub repository, github.com slash Zach Zied. I, of course, am uh, Chris, Mistwire, and away we go. Oh, um, one quick request. Uh, tonight we are going to take our, we're going to um, have our Q&A at the end. So I, I will be monitoring the questions, but we're going to save them all for the end. Uh, thank you for understanding. All right, Zach, here we go. You are now the presenter. All right, sounds good. See my screen? I can see your screen now, sir. You're good to go. Excellent. All right. Uh, my as you know, my name is uh, Zach Zaid. I'm going to be talking to you guys about domain oh, sorry, four. I your name. Oh, no, that's 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 fine. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to be talking about uh, domain four uh, troubleshooting for the AWS Solutions Architect uh, Associate certification. So, oh, hold on. There we go. Who am I? Uh, I'm Zach. Uh, I have 15 years experience in IT support, eight of that has been in IT support, um, six in operations infrastructure, three as a DevOps practitioner at FireEye, uh, one as a partridge in a pear tree, <laughs> uh, and I'm currently the cloud services engineer at AHEAD. Um, Wait a minute, you're also the 12 days of Christmas? That's awesome, okay. I, I also am the 12 days of Christmas. Hot damn. <laughs> Uh, I'm a tinker of AWS. Uh, you could say I have um, four of the five AWS certifications, and I'm currently studying for the DevOps Pro, which is tomorrow. So, so wish me luck on that one. Good luck, man. Thanks. So, if you've been following the V Brown Bag series, you'll know that there's been uh, four domains, and the most recent one was Domain Two with uh, Brian Crossan. And again, you know, to reiterate, you know, this is domain four, which is troubleshooting. Uh, so the troubleshooting is the smallest uh, objective of the exam. It's uh, worth 10%, so there may only be a few questions on the test overall, but it will allow you to pick up those questions fairly quickly. Um, being, you know, the troubleshooting domain itself allows you to get more involved with some of the intricacies with the AWS services. And this domain will touch on all the services covered by other domains. So if you see me talking about stuff that's been covered in other domains, well, you know, you're just learning it even more. So again, this is general troubleshooting and information and questions from the blueprint itself. And some of the success criteria I found in this domain is having a solid grasp of the core AWS services 
such as your VPC networking, your EC2, EBS, CloudWatch, etc. A basic understanding of your networking fundamentals is key here. So know your OSI model. This is essential to troubleshooting most network and application uh, connectivity issues. Um, and this is very similar to the shared responsibility model where you're really looking at the host layer instead of the, the, de uh, the media layer of the OSI model. And having basic troubleshooting skills is, is essential. So, TCP dump, NetStat, you know, things of that nature. So some of the topics covered here is going to be networking, compute, storage, and monitoring. Um, AWS services are fairly expansive, so I've picked these to uh, be some of the concepts I'll be focusing on. So we're going to get started with AWS networking here. Uh, so if you've gone through the other domains, you should know a bit about the different services, so I'll try not to get too in the weeds. Uh, for the exam, you should have an understanding of the following networking concepts as it applies to AWS networking and VPC design. I mean, you know, this is a solutions architect exam after all. So route tables. Route tables, they are a logical grouping of route rules. They're designed to route network traffic to various destinations such as your VPC gateway or an elastic network interface of an instance. By default, all subnets are associated with a single default route table. The, uh, the route tables uh, allow inter-subnet traffic through a local route. Uh, this route rule is immutable, so if you wish to restrict traffic, AWS provides network security features in the form of security groups and network ACLs, which we'll cover later. By default, the route table will direct all outbound traffic through the VPC Internet Gateway if one was made on VPC creation. And when a VPC is created, all the subnets within that VPC are associated with the default route table unless otherwise specified. So network access control list, uh, this is a layer of the, of the VPC uh, that provides some security controls. Um, or traffic to and from the subnets. Uh, the nature of the net, uh, network ACLs is that they're stateless, which means you must explicitly allow both an outbound and an inbound rule um, if you want to allow that traffic. Uh, network ACL rules are evaluated in order, so if you, if you have a deny rule for a subnet, but then you have an allow rule for an IP within that subnet, the, the traffic will be denied for that IP. And each uh, NACL table has an explicit deny rule. So if none of the traffic to the subnet meets those rules within the table, it'll automatically be denied. Um, subnets associated with the, the network ACL table, uh, I'm sorry, uh, subnets must be associated with the network ACL table and by default are associated with the one that's created by the VPC. As a note, uh, you can have up to 20 inbound and 20 outbound rules, but you're going to uh, see some network performance degradation when you start getting uh, that many rules in a single table. Uh, it's always a good practice to use a security model that involves least access design when it comes to designing your VPC. So security control group, uh, I'm sorry, uh, security groups. 
Uh, as network ACLs act as a firewall for your VPC network, security groups act as a firewall for your instances. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, security groups are stateful, so you don't need an explicit outbound rule uh, added to the security group. Uh, security groups only filter based on destination port. For example, you can't specify an allow rule for specific traffic from a source port. Uh, you can't, you also can't add in a, a rule to a DNS name, so it's only uh, setter blocks. Uh, AWS does allow uh, uh, security groups to nest, so security groups can have rules uh, referenced by other security groups. You know, for example, you can allow port 22 from security group B to security group A, and security and instances associated with security group A will allow that traffic. Uh, I found that nesting security groups is a good way to get around some of the uh, AWS security group and rule limits, uh, and but I found that it's sort of burdensome to troubleshoot that when you know you're trying to figure out why connectivity from one VPC to another isn't working. So keep that in mind when you are using them. Um, EC2 instances can be associated with as little as zero security groups or as many as five security groups. And AWS recognizes you know, that there are these limitations and they continue to grow it. So I think when I first started messing around with AWS, you could only have 20 security groups and now it's 50, for example. So we have your uh, VPC gateways. So I talked about uh, network ACLs, which involve traffic to and from subnets, and I've talked about security groups that involve traffic to and from instances. Uh, gateways involve traffic to and from VPCs, and AWS uses gateways to allow traffic from instances to communicate out to the internet. Um, the, the default uh, gateway, um, pun intended, is the internet gateway. Um, this is a component of the VPC that's designed to be scalable and redundant, and it is the default gateway that is referenced by the route table created by the VPC. Um, there can only be one internet gateway per VPC, and that internet gateway needs to be attached to, v to the VPC to allow it to work. You have your uh, NAT gateway. Uh, this is a relatively new feature uh, that this allows non-public facing instances to communicate out to the internet. It's, uh, it's versatile to 10 gigabits per second, uh, but it needs to be associated with a public subnet and it can only be associated with a single subnet at any given time. Um, the function of the NAT gateway is to allow instances to communicate out, uh, outbound, so you can't use it with some of the, the following networking features. Um, you can't use it to route traffic to a VPC endpoint. You can't use it to route traffic over a VPN connection. Uh, you can't use it to route traffic through your direct connect connection, and you can't use it to route your traffic over a VPC peer. And then you have your VPN gateway. And the VPN gateway is a component of the VPN connection that is established, uh, that is needed to establish a VPN connection. It is uh, the one, uh, one of two components uh, necessary to create a VPN connection. Um, so you need a customer gateway to that references your endpoint to uh, create an AWS VPN connection. You can't use it to reference another AWS VPN connection, 
but you can use it, for example, if you had an EC2 instance in a different region, you can you know, establish an IPsec tunnel that way. Um, one of the issues that I've, I've typically found is with VPN connections, if you're not advertising the routes to your on-prem network, then it's not going to be able to communicate. And a lot of people forget that it needs those routes advertised. And then you have your VPC peering. And VPC peering uh, gives you the ability to route traffic between uh, private CIDR blocks. So this is your 192.168 routing traffic to your 172.16 VPCs. Uh, this is a, a really good to use as a hub spoke model. So you, like your management VPC can be used to monitor your dev and your QA and your production VPCs. Uh, and they all can route traffic through your management VPC to give you that insight into your environment. Uh, you can also specify specific subnets to peer. Uh, but again, this uh, will leverage route tables. It can't be used in a, a transitive manner. So as you can see in the diagram here, that you have VPC A as the, the hub and B and C as the spoke. Uh, VPC B and VPC C cannot talk to each other through VPC A. Uh, you can't uh, also leverage it as an outbound gateway. So we have VPC B here trying to communicate to the corporate network through VPC A. It's not going to work. Um, there's a really good uh, video, I think it's called uh, a billion, like a day in the life of a billion packets, and that really goes in depth about how AWS does their networking on the back end, and I highly recommend watching it um, as a part of this certification overall. Uh, as another note, um, you can't peer between regions. So if you're trying that and you fail, you check to make sure that they're not in different regions. All right. I'm so, sorry, could you say that again? What was what was that that uh, video? A billion packets. Uh, I have a a, a resources page here, but yeah, it's, I okay. think it's a day in the life of a billion packets. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, something like that. So we're going to go into sort of a, not really a demo, more of a, a scenario to walk you through things you're going to be looking for. Uh, and the, the, uh, the scenario here is you're an administrator who can't connect to an instance and it keeps timing out. So what should you be checking for? And the hint here is, you know, remember your OSI model. So let's see if this works. I mean, so, all right, cool. So, some of the things we're going to check is, well, first, you know, we're going to check to make sure that is the VPC running? It, it's running. The status checks are good. So, yeah, it's running. It does it have uh, a public IP? It does have a public IP, so that's good. That means if it has a public IP or an EIP, at the very least, it's publicly accessible. Uh, then we want to check our security group rules, and we want to see that it does allow the uh, traffic that I'm uh, trying to connect to. Uh, it does allow traffic to that port. So we checked that. And now we're like, okay, so it's running. Uh, you have the traffic open on a security group. You now let's go and check the VPC. And we want to go and we want to see, we want to look at the network ACLs. And 
looking at the network ACLs, it has two of the subnets associated with it, so we know that any network ACL rule is going to be applied to those subnets. And now we look at the rules, and we see that it has allow all, and it has allow all outbound. So we've checked that, and we're like, hmm, okay. Well, what's what's missing? What are we missing here? We go and we look, we go look and look at route tables. And now you can see here that I put it into. Uh, and let me know if I'm going too fast, so so you guys can keep up here. We put it into subnet 11 DCAD 75. So we go and we look at this. Look at this uh, route table, and we see that it's associated um, with this with this route table. We look at the routes and we see that it's it doesn't have a a route outbound. So we're gonna go in here and we're gonna add another route for the default route. Now I really don't recommend doing this for your private subnet uh, and I'll go into a little bit about the difference between a private and a public subnet. So we go and we save it and that was successful. And we go and we SSH into it. And hopefully that works. And bam, there we go. So, go back to this guy. So we thought about the OSI model. You know, we we checked to see if the instance was running. You know, we checked to see if it had a public IP. You know, we checked to, to make sure that it had you know an associated network ACL that allowed inbound and outbound traffic. And we, oh, sorry, uh, and we check to make sure that the associated uh, security groups allow traffic inbound to the port I was trying to connect on. So I don't really, I didn't really cover this, but this is a, a key feature that you guys want to keep in mind when uh, doing infrastructure design uh, for your VPC is what makes a subnet publicly routable. Um, so a few things that make it a, uh, a subnet, a public sub, a subnet, is there's a, a parameter when creating a subnet that allows instances deployed in that subnet to be auto-assigned public IPs. So when I deployed that instance, I you know I I uh, in that subnet it had the IP address already automatically assigned to it. Uh, the VPC needs to contain a gateway that allows up on traffic. So one thing you want to check for is, you know, does it have a gateway attached to it? You know, like your NAT gateway, an internet gateway, or a virtual gateway. And another key thing that you need is to make sure that the subnet is associated with a route table that has a default route to any of those gateways. Uh, and so that's what makes, you know, the difference between a public subnet and a private subnet. And I have a, uh, I have a Lambda function that goes off every night and to make sure that every instance within a public, uh, a private subnet as defined by these characteristics remains private because uh, it only takes a couple of clicks to you know change that. So we move on to you know AWS compute and AWS provides compute in the form of EC2 instances and, and there's a few different uh, pricing types which you will need to know for the exam uh, but it's outside the scope of this domain. But there are two different flavors of compute which we will cover. You have your instance store backed instances. 
these these are your directly attached storage. This is the compute type uh, where the storage is a part of the physical disk of the host. And data on this instance does not persist in the event of an instance failure. So a key thing about these instances is that they cannot be rebooted, they cannot be stopped, and they cannot be started except you know on their initial creation. Uh, they can only be terminated. And then you have your EBS-backed instances, which is your network-attached storage. And this is the compute type that leverages EBS volumes for both its root and data volumes. And since it's network-attached and a separate service itself, data on these EBS volumes do persist when the instance is stopped. Um, the volumes can be snapshotted as a part of your backup or DR strategy, or you can use them to you know, create a new instance from. Uh, a key note is when you are creating an EBS volume, they must be in the same region and AZ as your instance when you're, when you're attaching them. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about auto-scaling. Um, and this is more gonna be focused around some of the you know, gotchas about an auto-scaling event. It's a service within EC2 that automatically scales instances in response to specific CloudWatch metrics or other triggers. So some of the things you wanna look for when an auto-scaling event doesn't happen is, well, you wanna look at the activity history to make, to see why, you know, it's not launching. And you can see here, you know, I have successfully launched two instances, but this is where you would go to see why it didn't, you know, it didn't trigger. So, you know, some of the things you, you want to check for with auto-scaling is you want to ensure that the CloudWatch metric alarms that you set up trigger an auto-scaling action. Um, this is something that's configurable in CloudWatch, and we're going to cover that a little bit later. You want to ensure that CloudWatch metrics uh, match the auto-scaling policy, and you're going to need to adjust your metrics as needed. So if you have your, your metric to trigger on 90%, but your CPU utilization it only goes up to 80, it's just not going to trigger. So you should adjust your, um, your baseline accordingly. Um, one of the things that I've run into a few times when creating auto-scaling groups is you want to make sure you don't hit an AWS service limit. Um, there's been, a, like I said, a few times where I'm trying to spin up you know, 10 or 20 instances and they all fail because I ran out of, you know, I, I hit my limit, and that's that's going to be a manual ticket to AWS to increase your limit. Uh, if it's if you're asking for like a hundred thousand instances, well, I mean they're probably going to want to talk to you. <laughs> uh, another thing you you should check for is to make sure that your launch configuration isn't misconfigured. Um, this is kind of rare, um, but it'll still it's still I still run into it from time to time. Um, and then you want to check you know, IP exhaustion in the subnet. And this is especially important if you're doing auto-scaling uh, groups and EOBs in the same subnet. Um, and we'll go into a little bit uh, why that is with auto, uh, load balancers. And then you want to ensure that your max and current instances aren't equal. So you're, when you look at this, you know, your max instances, that's as far as your auto-scaling group is going to scale out. So if you know your max and current instances are equal, then you're going to want to bump your your max instance 
you really should you know have some type of notification when you get when you hit your max instance to begin with so you can go ahead and bump it up before you run into these limits so we're going to talk uh, about load balancing next and that's again another service within EC2 that allows traffic to be load balanced over multiple instances you have uh, two types you have your application load balancer which was just released um, Take what two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, was at um, new, um, the AWS summit in New York, and then you have your classic load balancer. Um, I'm going to focus more on the classic load balancer because I feel like that's going to be more on the exam right now than the application load balancer. So some of the things you're going to want to check for when troubleshooting load balancing issues is, you know, if your load if your load balancer isn't, you know. Your load balancer isn't um, load balancing across the instances. Um, you want to ensure that you know if it's in a multi-AZ architecture that the cross-zone load balancing is enabled. If it's in a single AZ architecture, you, you're going to want to check for session stickiness or some sort of you know maybe your the the loading policy isn't uh, working uh, as properly. Uh, if your instances aren't coming up healthy, this uh, can typically be a networking issue. So you really want to confirm the that the subnets in uh, that are associated with the load balancer can communicate with the subnets that the instances are on, especially if they're separate subnets. Um, a consideration here is that an ELB listener isn't a security group; it just tells the ELB what ports it needs to listen on and the ELB will need its own security group that will allow traffic in. And then the instances will need to allow traffic coming from the ELB itself. And if the instances aren't checking into the ELB, um, you want to see, you want to make sure that the subnet is properly associated with the ELB. And um, again, this is a lot of like networking considerations. Like can, are the subnets, you know, um, protected by a network ACL, do are my security groups too restrictive? Am I am I allowing the proper security groups through? Right. So we're going to go into scenario two here, and this is really recovering a data from a failed instance. So here I'm going to attempt to show you uh, what you would do to recover instance from a uh, uh, I'm sorry data from a a volume here, so give me a second. Um, let's see. So I think that's it. Yeah. So we have this guy here, scenario two. I'm gonna SSH in that guy. Awkward. Oh, wrong one. <laughs> <laughs> happens. This this is exactly what happens every time you have a live demo. This, this is you're a brave man, sir. So you can see that I've somehow messed up my sudoverse file. Um, hopefully, everyone here knows Linux. Uh, so you never want to edit your sudoverse file without. VI sudo. 
um, <laughs> like I did here. Um, and I'm pulling this out of a, a real life experience I did many, many years ago. And I was, so yeah, that's awkward. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to stop this instance because we need to like, get back into that instance, but we can't do it with, without being able to pseudo to, you know, escalate your privileges to a super user. So we're going to stop it. And yeah, that guy's yep, yep, it's down. And we're going to take note of the EBS ID here, which is uh, VOL02E92980. And we're just going to click into it. And hopefully it will be stopped by now. And we're going to go ahead and detach it. No. Maybe not. Or maybe not. Uh, that's what I get for uh, trying to do a live demo. It's all good, dude. This this is uh, par for the course. <laughs> <laughs> it'll, it'll work this time, I swear. Let's give it a shot. There we go. Shablam. There you go. All right. So now it's it's detached. And we're going to attach it to another instance. And in this case, we're going to we're going to attach it to scenario one, which is running. And we're going to give it, you know, you know, some sort of dev SDC or whatever, uh, some block name here. And it is now in use. And what we're going to do is we're going we're going to go to uh, let's see, are you good? Yeah. All right. We're going to go over to, uh, to this guy, and you're going to see that. We now have vol 2 e92980 that's attached to the block, uh, to the instance. We're going to go into that guy. We're going to do uh, ls block. Yeah, we're going to see here that you have xvdc, which is which matches uh, the block mapping for this device here. And what we're going to do now is we're going to do some pseudo magic. I'm hoping everyone here knows Linux, so I'm making a huge assumption. <laughs> so we're going to make a, uh, you know, we're going to make a directory, and then we're going to mount that device to to that mount point. I, I think it's safe to say that if uh, if we don't have any people, if we do have people here that are not um, comfortable with Linux, if they are going for their AWS certification. Um, now, now would be an opportune time to get up to speed on that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, and I, I just I chose uh, Linux over Windows for my profession just because I could get the operating system for free. So don't hate me. <laughs> it's all good. All right. So now we've mounted it, and you can see that this is uh, you know mounted. You have your 8 gig drive here, and then we're gonna go. Mount data vault Etsy. Then we go into the pseudoverse file here, and we're gonna see. Oh, that's that's where I messed up, guys. Go and now uh, remove that line, and then you want to do uh, unmount it. And this is just um, a good way to make sure that it's actually unmounted because. There's been a couple times where I didn't check and did an rm-rf. Oh. 
There we go. And we go and we do an LS on that data volume and you can see nothing's here. So we can safely do it this time. Alright. So now that we've done that, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna click back into this guy. We're gonna go ahead and we are going to detach it. It should be a little quicker this time. So once that's detached. So once that's detached, what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and reattach it to the original instance that it was attached to. And so here's a here's a thing here that's a, that's sort of a gotcha. Um, because this was the root device of this instance, this will not work here. You need to tell it explicitly to mount back to dev xvda. Otherwise, when you mount it and it try to start it, it's going to say, can't find, you know, a root volume, um, which is never a good thing. So we're here in see scenario two, and now you see this guy is back and it's reattached. And we're going to, we're going to go ahead and start it. And it's going to take a few minutes to initialize, but We'll revisit this at the end. I'll show you guys that it actually worked. I swear it did. <laughs> okay. All right. So once I'm going to let that uh, start up, and then we'll revisit it. We're just uh, going to move on to AWS monitoring. And AWS provides a couple of different ways uh, to gain visibility into your AWS environment. This is through both their CloudWatch and CloudTrail service. Uh, you know, for this domain, we're going to be specifically focusing on CloudWatch and the, the CloudWatch metrics feature, as that tightly integrates with a lot of the services we've already covered. Uh, so you have your, you know, your CloudWatch events in your CloudWatch logs in your CloudWatch metrics. Uh, your CloudWatch events is your log is sort of you like your log filtering um, uh, feature within that service. You have your uh, CloudWatch logs, which is your log aggregator. And then you have CloudWatch metrics, which is uh, the service and feature that monitors operating specific resources, uh, such as your CP, CPU utilization, uh, your network IO, and your disk IO. CloudWatch can also be used for custom metrics, like your application metrics, or maybe you want to monitor disk uh, or memory utilization, uh, but this typically requires either a third-party agent or a custom script. Uh, and AWS provides one of these for your Linux instances, uh, so that's really nice of them. Uh, uh, metrics are aggregated over a five-minute uh, period level of granularity, uh, but if you have your EC2 instances uh, with detailed monitoring enabled, this is a one-minute inter uh, interval. Uh, as a note, if you want detailed monitoring uh, enabled, this has to be enabled per instance. So you can see here, you know, I enabled CPU uh, uh, detailed monitoring for this instance, and you can see where it starts aggregating a lot more. So, and that's something, you know, it's really good in conjunction with auto scaling groups because it's more responsive. So instead of waiting for CloudWatch to aggregate a um, a data point at five minute, it gets to that one minute, kicks off the auto scaling uh, event and does its thing. 
So that's, that's why you would want to use detailed monitoring. Uh, I sort of skipped over this when talking about compute, but you know, AWS has their EC2 status checks, and this provides monitoring of your instances and their underlying hosts. So within each instance, there are two types of checks, and these checks are typically performed every single, uh, every one minute. You have your system status checks, which monitors the underlying physical hardware. Uh, so if this check fails, you can either start, stop the instance, and it'll come up on a new host, or you can wait for AWS to resolve the issue. It's typically easier to just start and stop the instance. Um, as a note, um, a reboot does not work. A reboot will bring it back up on the same host. It needs to be a start and stop. Um, I don't know. Uh, if you remember previously, um, this will not work for an instance store backed instance. So if you know that instance is hosed, then you're just going to have to terminate it. And then you have your um, uh, so your system status checks. They check you know for the following: they check for the loss of power to the physical host, uh, loss of connect uh, connectivity to that host, uh, or they you know they also check for hardware software issues on the physical host. Uh, I don't know how many of you have been using uh, AWS, but the uh, the CVE for the hypervisor back in 2014, that was a, a software issue. And if you remember, those required hard stops and hard starts. So, And then you have your instance status checks. Uh, this monitors your underlying hardware and software config of the EC2 instance. Uh, a failure of this check typically requires some sort of administrative intervention here. Um, uh, though AWS has released a few ways to trigger uh, actions uh, with their CloudWatch events, uh, which is a lot, uh, super nice. Uh, a few things that would cause uh, an instance stash check to fail would be uh, a, a, like a failed system stash check, because uh, that interrupts the functionality of a compute instance, uh, an incorrect startup or network config, uh, exhausted memory, corrupted file system, or incompatible uh, kernel. And each of these checks are integrated into AWS's CloudWatch service, and then you can trigger specific actions based off alarms. So we can go back in here, and we're going to check to see if this guy, yep, this guy is back up and running. So it says H, oh, yeah. Is that the right one? Nope, oh. So we're going to go and we're going to SSH back into this guy real quick, just to prove to you guys I, I know this works. Yeah. yeah, and we're able to, uh, you know, escalate as super user. So here are some uh, resources. And as I talked about, a day in the life of a billion packets. I've included a link for your monitoring, and here are some white papers to help you, uh, you know, you know, around best practices and architecting, you know, well on uh, AWS. Any questions? Dadgummit, sorry about that. I lost my I lost my cursor and I couldn't find it. Uh, so <laughs> yes, um, we <laughs> we've got a couple here. Um, let's see. Um, back uh, during the security portion, uh, somebody asked 
advertising routes up and down? Uh, no, just uh, no. You just want to advertise. For example, you have a ten dot ten dot ten dot zero slash twenty four on your on-prem um, data center. Uh, you want to you want to tell AWS that any traffic heading to that that CIDR is going over the VPN connection. Oh, so okay. you're not advertising up down for your your actual uh, cust uh, edge router IP. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and uh, if if you could if you could send me a copy of um, your your uh, your PPT, then then we'll we'll tag that with the um, the information on the website. I want to I want to get those links out to everybody because somebody asked for about a day in life of a billion packets. Um, the next question is, um, what does a service limit constitute? Uh, this this was in regards to when you were talking about um, be careful not to hit your service limits. Um, if, you're, if you're spinning up another 20, 20 uh, VMs and you, and you didn't know why they didn't come up, what, what, is, what, is, a, what is a service limit? How, how, how do you hit a service limit and, and how do you know when you're getting up to it, up to a limit? Uh, so it'd be easier to show you. This is a service limit. So you have you know, your various instance limits, you have your various EBS limits and your host limits, et cetera. These are just like your limits on the the number of instances and the instance types that you can spin up. Uh, this is a way for you know AWS to you know do their their whole you know capacity planning thing. Um, and these are these are typically soft limits. There's only a few hardware uh, limits uh, out there, or like hard limits. Uh, so you want to use like trusted advisor or you want to be able to you know programmatically get the the limits here and to know what your limits are at so so yeah those are what the limits are and keep in mind that your limits are per region too gotcha okay cool um, uh, the next one so this one this one was during uh, your first demo uh, the question was why XVDA rather than SDA uh, because that's the way that uh, AWS maps the root volume to the instances. Okay. And uh, another question was, uh, oh, uh, can you set up notifications for when you hit max instances in an ASG, in an autoscope? Uh, you know what? I'm not 100% sure on that one. I'm going to have to uh, look into it and Get back to you. There's there are ways mm -hmm. of setting up notifications uh, to be notified of when you're hitting that. I'm just not sure if it's integrated into uh, auto scaling groups in general. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. All right. Uh, so uh, let's see what else. That was it for the local questions. Uh, there's some chuckle nuts named Brian Krausen who's asking questions somewhere. I'm, I'm just going to ignore those questions. He's uh, a he, he doesn't. He doesn't get any questions answered. Um. <laughs> That's enough, enough to begin with. <laughs> uh, for for everybody else, uh, Brian and Zach work together, so we're we're not we're not being mean to anybody who doesn't deserve it, uh, allegedly. <clears throat> so uh, that that is it. We are, we are we are good for questions now. Um, Zach, thanks very much for your time this evening. That was excellent. We, pr we appreciate your time. Oh no, thank you very much for having me on.
Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so I'm going to go ahead and stop the recording.